The master had six wives and he had none. He was lonely and wanted a woman for himself. And why shouldn't the master let him have a wife, for he had served the master well. His name was Torgo, and when a family, a husband, wife, small daughter, and dog, arrived at the house looking for shelter, he saw his opportunity. After all, the master was away. The young mother, Margaret, seemed the perfect woman to make Torgo's life complete. But when the master wakes, what will he think? On this episode of Celluloid Days, we look at the 1966 film Manos, The Hands of Fate. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. Hello there, my name is Jeff Kelly and welcome to the 25th episode of Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. Today is the last Monday of the month. And that means we're going to talk about a film that has been featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000 or one of its related shows. The film we are talking about today has actually been featured on all its related shows, MST3K, Riff Tracks, and The Mads. I'm talking about the one and only Manos, The Hands of Fate. Now Nancy will be here in the second half of the show to talk about the Mystery Science Theater 3000 take on the film. But before that, I'm going to tell you a little history of the film. Now, many people call Ed Wood the worst filmmaker in history. The film Manos proves this not to be true. Now, like many films on Mystery Science Theater 3000, the print used was a bad one, and that adds to the comedy. In fact, one criticism of Mystery Science Theater is they often use bad prints, making the film seem a lot worse than it actually is. Recently, The Mads, starring Trace Bellew and Frank Conniff, did a riff on Manos, and they used a restored print. It helped a bit. The picture was a lot brighter and more in focus, but it was still Manos. I am Torgo. I take care of the place while the master is away. The film was directed by a man named Harold P. Warren. Harold is usually referred to as a fertilizer salesman, but some sources say he was actually the manager of the American Founders Life Insurance Company in El Paso, Texas. He was also involved in El Paso's theater scene. In fact, it was this connection that allowed him to get some of his actors. He once appeared on an episode of a 1960s TV show called Route 66. It was a walk-on role as a bus driver. Now, the story goes like this, and um, this may be apocryphal, but it sounds great. He was hanging out at a local coffee shop with Sterling Siliphant, a man who would go on to be an Academy Award-winning screenwriter. He was in town to scout some locations for a new film. I couldn't find any information about how Harold hooked up with Sterling, but Sterling had been a writer on Route 66, so that could have been the connection. Maybe Harold was offering to sell him insurance. I don't know. But at one point during the conversation, Harold said he thought it would be a simple thing to make a horror film. Anybody could do it. When Sterling showed some skepticism, Harold made a bet. He said he could make a horror film totally on his own. 
he took out a napkin and began to outline the story that would become Manos, the Hands of Fate. Harold quickly went to work. He was able to raise $19,000, most by offering a percentage of the film's profits. Even in 1965, $20,000 wasn't enough to make a film. Now, since he was involved in the local theater scene, he was able to get a group of actors to play in the film. He offered them no payment for their participation, but like the investors, a percentage of the box office. Bernie Rosenblum, one of the crew members for Manos, said in the documentary Torgo Hotel that at some point the cast and crew started to discuss the percentages they were promised and it figured to add up to at least 300%. There were two working titles for the film, The Lodge of Sin or The Fingers of Fate. The camera Harold chose to use for this project was a hand-wound 16mm Bell & Howell camera that could only shoot for about 32 seconds at a time. While 32 seconds might seem short, most shots and films are under 30 seconds, so that shouldn't have been a problem. He also couldn't afford to rent sound equipment, so it would be shot silent with the idea of adding all the dialogue and sound effects in post. Hey, that's the way Sergio Leone works, so if it's good enough for Leone... Now this is the story of a family. Dad, Mom, a young daughter named Debbie, and her dog. They're on vacation but get lost, and they wind up in a small ranch that is managed by a strange fellow with goat legs and hooves named Torgo. Torgo is taking care of the place while the master is away. Michael, the father, by the way, treats Torgo like crap from the minute they meet. Inside, the family sees a painting of the master with a big black dog with red eyes, and that scares him a bit. And soon, however, their little dog is killed, so the family decides to leave, but they can't because their car won't start. Torgo says the master wants the young wife for another bride, but Torgo, at the same time, has the hots for her. Don't you ever try that again, you beat! Master wants you, but he can't have you. I want you. Stop that talk this instant, you hear? He wants you, but he can't have you. Mike! Mike! You see, the master already has six wives, who are all dressed up in, like, 1930s lingerie, and he keeps them out in the desert tied to concrete columns. And that, by the way, is where the master is sleeping, on a concrete slab right near his wives. Now, Torgo shows a bit of rebellion, and when the master eventually wakes up, well, that's where the fun starts. Oh, and for the people who get off on stuff like this, there are long scenes where the wives wrestle in the sand in the most unsexiest lingerie I think Harold could find. For the part of Michael, the father of the doomed family, Harold P. Warren cast himself. So not only was he writing, directing, and producing the film, he was also taking one of the starring roles. At one point, he gets licked in the face by one of the wives. So think about it. Harold wrote that. Harold wrote, I get licked in the face. By the way, I stole that joke from Rift Tracks. So anyway. Playing Margaret, his young wife, was Diane Alderson. She does a pretty good job in the film and went on to have a pretty successful modeling career. I will point out that she was 22 years old at the time, and Harold was 43. And the girl playing the daughter in the film was 6 years old. So when you think about the math, it gets a bit creepy. 
Anyway, in an interview on the Manos in HD website, Adelson says Warren tried to get her to do a topless scene, but she refused. John Reynolds played the master's twitchy assistant Torgo, another community actor. Rumors have persisted over the years that the strange leg braces that he was forced to wear in the film caused so much pain, he became hooked on painkillers, and that led to his death. That's not true, however. The truth is he suffered from depression and was addicted to drugs. He would commit suicide with a gun about one month after the film premiered. The mysterious and evil master was played by ex-Christian minister Tom Newman. His daughter said in an interview on the internet talk show, Talk to the Hand, that Tom was a quiet and gentle man, completely unlike his character in the film. Besides acting in the film, he also helped create the iron sculpture, painted the large portrait of the master and his dog, and wrote much of his own dialogue. He was also very big in the local community theater scene. Holy art thou, holy art thou, holy art thou, Manos will be done. Thy priesthood remains steadfast, thy priesthood remains constant, thy priesthood remains righteous. Thou hast taught us, O Manos, and we have listened. Give ear to our words, O Manos, and hear us. Hear us, hear us, for we are faithful, and thou art our God. Arise, my wives, give ear to the words of Manos. Arise, my wives, and hear the will of Manos. Speaking of his daughter, Jackie Newman, who's now called Jackie Newman Jones, she played the little girl Debbie, and it was her dog, Shanka, who played the big dog in the film. She was six years old at the time it was filmed, and she claims that she and the dog were the only two actually paid for their work in the film. She received a new bicycle and Shanka a 50-pound bag of dog food. Jackie's mother, Tom's wife, created all the costumes for the film. The couple making out in the convertible during the film were Bernie Rosenblum and Joyce Mahler. Apparently, Joyce was supposed to play one of the master's wives, but broke her leg practicing a stunt, so the couple in the car was written into the film so she could still be in it. You'd think we're doing something wrong. Well, whatever it is you're not doing, go don't do it somewhere else. you guys leave us alone? Come on now, no wisecracks. Just go on home. Okay. Later, with the help of her father, she would sue Harold and his company Sun City Films of El Paso for the medical costs. The film was shot in the summer of 1966 in six days, or some say eight days, because they could only afford to rent the equipment for that long. And it is said that since they were shooting night for night, he sometimes used car headlights for lighting. And that's why actors didn't move very far in a scene, because of the limited amount of light. In one scene, we see two police go to investigate something. They only take two steps before they turn around and come back. That was the reason. Harold would rarely take more than two takes for each shot. If things didn't go well, he would tell the crew they would fix it in post. There is one shot in which you can clearly see the clapboard being pulled out of the frame. As filming went on, the energetic Hal became more of a prima donna, 
and the increasingly disgruntled crew began to refer to the movie as Mangos, the Cans of Fruit. After six days of shooting was done, Hal edited the film in about six hours using editing equipment at a local TV station at night. He had to finish by the time people came into work the next morning. And then, with some of the men who starred in the film, they traveled 700 miles to Dallas, Texas to use a recording studio to do the voiceovers. Unfortunately, none of the women went. Diane Alderson, who played the mother, was told she could come if she paid her own way, so she flat out refused. So one woman was hired to do all the voice dubs for all the female parts, including little Debbie. I'm getting cold, mother, and hungry. Hey, can you tell? The film premiered at the Capra Theater in El Paso, Texas on November 15, 1966. Hal made it a grand event, with a real Hollywood feel. He rented searchlights and limousines for the arrival of the cast. Actually, he only rented one limousine because that's all he could afford. So he had the cast wait around the other side of the block, and then he would travel around in circles, picking up small groups, dropping them off, circling around back to pick another group. This gave the appearance of them all arriving by limo. Important people like the mayor and other dignitaries were given free passes, while the public was charged 35 cents for children and $1.25 for adults. Things started to go bad almost immediately. Jackie Newman, who played the little girl Debbie, was horrified when she heard her dubbed voice and began to cry. Diane Alderson said she couldn't stop laughing at how bad the film was, and her mother kept poking her in the side, telling her to stop, that it wasn't funny. Before the film was over, most of the cast and crew had snuck out in embarrassment. It is said that Harold knew that he had made the worst film ever, but still was proud of it, and he suggested that he might redub it into a comedy. He also had a sequel planned, but that never happened for obvious reasons. He was able to get the film shown at a few drive-ins, but after that it disappeared and thought lost forever. Jackie Newman and her dad often wondered for years whatever became of that film they had been in. And then in 1993, to her surprise, her father Tom gave her a phone call. He was a big fan of Mystery Science Theater 3000, and was amazed to see Joel and the Bots watching the film. In an interview on the podcast Talking Manos with Tony Trombeau, Jackie said she called Comedy Central to find out if she could get a copy of the film. The man asked what film, and when she said Manos, The Hands of Fate, he put her on hold for a few moments, then came back and said, You aren't the little girl who played Debbie, are you? She said yes, and they were able to get her a copy of the tape. So the world was introduced to this now cult classic, much to the surprise of the surviving cast. Unfortunately, Harold P. Warren died on December 26, 1985, so he was unable to enjoy the fame his film would receive. Jackie Newman Jones has been capitalizing on the film ever since, selling Manos t-shirts and paintings. She has done sequels such as Manos Returns and Manos The Rise of Torgo. Right now, she's starring in the TV series The Manos Chronicles, and she's also giving internet art lessons based on Manos. I posted a little video on Twitter back in November 15th celebrating the anniversary of the film's release. 
it was my most retweeted and commented post ever, and even Frank Conniff, the man who is credited for discovering the film, commented. But I've rambled on long enough. It's time to hear what Nancy thinks about the Mystery Science Theater 3000 take on the film. Hello, folks. Well, it was going to happen eventually, like tearing off a grungy band-aid in one sharp pull. It has come at last, time to cover Manos, the hands of fate. Or, as Mary Jo Peel points out in the amazing Colossal Episode Guide, in light of the translation of the word Manos, the title of this ambitious film endeavor is basically Hands, the Hands of Fate, which pretty much sets the tone for the weirdness to come. The opening segment reveals Joel with the robots worshipfully adoring him due to a new protocol module he's experimenting with. It takes about 15 seconds for their non-stop butt-kissing to get annoying, and Joel regrets the experiment. After the commercial, it's time for the invention exchange. Dr. Forrester and Frank have developed a diabolical labor-saving device. Our invention this week is based on one's natural inclination to bite the heads off of chocolate bunnies. That's right, Frank. That's why we've invented the chocolate bunny guillotine. And no chocolate mess. Well, poopsies? Joel and the bots are suitably appalled. They, on the other hand, have developed the car tuner, a device which mashes up tame old comic strips and makes them funnier, with wacky results. Ziggy had Garfield neutered, now that's funny! <laughs> Even without the edits, Manos is not a long film, and Best Brains found it necessary to accommodate a proper riffing. This means we're treated to one of the many short films, usually a mini-documentary, educational film, or industrial training film from the 40s through the 70s, that were perfect for the MST treatment. In this case, we get part two of Hired, a gem from the Chevrolet car company. For part one, see MST 423, Bride of the Monster. Oh, uh, hired two, electric boogaloo. <laughs> Ostensibly, it's a primer on good general salesmanship, but it's really just an infomercial for how to buy a Chevy. It's also a cornucopia of setups for some of the funniest riffing in riffing history. You owe a lot of your success to the way Harry Carpenter worked with you. Give him hell, Harry. Harry. Say, I think I'm beginning to see what you mean. I'm beginning to sober up and you're scaring me. I wonder. Now, why? Wonder. Say, maybe that's the reason I haven't had very much luck with Jimmy. I'm gonna dance. I'll give you the names of three Chevrolet owners who live up that way. Crush them. Meanwhile, Elliot Ness and his untouchables head for a speakeasy in Berwyn. There are a lot of sight gags in this section of the episode, but you get the flavor. Now, grab your popcorn and settle in for the slow-motion train wreck that is... Yes, it's Manos, the Hands of Fate. You know, this is the slowest car chase scene I've ever seen. The first thing you notice is that this entire movie is looped. In the days of film, getting then syncing good sound was kind of a pain compared to today when everything is digital and easy to work with. Now, this doesn't mean there aren't indie filmmakers today who still think they can just use in-camera sound and call it good, because there are. 
It's just that there's no excuse for it anymore. The producer-director-star of Manos embraces the freedom to be mediocre and takes it one step further by doing some really subpar dubbing or looping, as we say in the industry. Of course, he loops his own dialogue, but the rest of the cast is looped by a very small voiceover cast who obviously double, triple, and quadruple up on the characters they voice, right down to the little girl who is painfully voiced by an adult woman. There are talented voice actors who can portray children so beautifully that you'd never know they were adults. They didn't hire one of them for this project. Visit beautiful Ground Zero. <laughs> At this point, we cut to the first of a series of scenes that are apparently intended as a tone change. A teen couple making out in a sports car by the side of the road. <laughs> Way to go, Steve! Like the rude mechanicals in Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, these sweaty 20-something teenagers offer us a different perspective on the impending perils of the vacationing family. Tastes like cherry Robitussin. I wonder where they're going. Man, like there's nothing up that road. Sadly, this hilarious comic relief comes to an end, and now it's time for the first host segment of the main attraction. Joel and the bots use some of the endless driving sequences with a blue screen and pretend to drive around the American Southwest. They're mostly okay, despite being reminded of the film they're suffering through. Well, kids, it's time for us to go on our motor tour of the southwestern states featuring many sites of historical interest. Oh, this is really nice. Hey, look, there's a field. And another field. And another field. Oh, and yes, it's very scenic. It's just like a scene from Battles, the Hands of Fate. Oh! <laughs> Eventually, they're pulled over by Gypsy, doing a silly impression of a Cool Hand Luke-esque highway patrol officer. She's annoyed when they break character in the middle of her big scene. Then we cut to Deep 13, where, to quote Mary Jo Peel again, Frank apologizes for the movie as well he should. From frame one, it's also obvious that the visuals of this epic production are going to be somewhat less than stunning. Every scene is a grab bag of random focus fields, exposure, and color timing, with unsurprising results. Manos, The Hands of Fate was filmed on location in a vacant lot. You know, every frame of this movie looks like someone's last known photograph. Now, the real star of the film, in my opinion, is the bizarre minion of The Master, a looming presence who fails to appear until about halfway into the story. I am Torgo. I take care of the place while the master is away. The master? Bobby Fisher? How proud your parents must be. With a probably accidental nod to H.B. Lovecraft, quote, the master is away, unquote, but not dead. In his absence, the low-wattage, uncoordinated halt-of-speech Torgo stands in as the caretaker of the uh, compound. I defend my declaring him the star if for no other reason than he gets his own unique, earwormy theme. So, what oh the... What, oh, oh. The haunting Torgo theme. Yes, there's thematic music for the scenes with the master and some creepy, porny saxophone riffing when Torgo tries to put the moves on the wife. Ooh. 
But Torgo's theme really stands out. Now, speaking of the wife, I doubt I'm alone in calling her out as an actress who can't seem to portray that wife without looking like she's acting. That's all caps. Like super hammy. Even the voiceover is hammy. And yet, somehow, she does this with fewer facial expressions than Sybil Shepherd. Now, that's talent. At some point, as the poor family becomes entangled in the evil machinations of the will of Manos, there are several opportunities, due to the many, many dialogueless moments, for Joel and the bots to do their own ADR for various characters. And some of the funniest are for the little girl. Mike. Oh, Mike, what could have done it? Ozzy Osbourne? What are you guys talking about? Where's my dog? Honey, it was probably some animal from the desert. Honestly, Kevin Murphy, and later on Trace Beaulieu, does a better voiceover for the little girl than the one in the movie. At some point, stuff happens, and the pretty wife is left alone in the house with the oily, twitchy Torgo, who proceeds to try to put the moves on her. He's not successful, partially, I think, due to the sleazy saxophone music used under his come-on attempt. I, I like your dress. I could introduce you to the master. My name actually is Roger. Seriously, this is already an uncomfortable moment, and the soft porn soundtrack makes it even worse. Was this intentional or just a result of tone-deaf scoring and music direction? I know, like this thing had a music director. The Academy Award for the most lounge lizardy soundtrack goes to this thing for sure. The master wants you. Wants me? What kind of talk is that? Why, it's oily, sleazy talk. The wife responds, as you might expect, and starts theatrically calling for her grumpy husband, Mike, to rescue her. But he's busy farting around with the car, which now refuses to start. Spooky. While the befuddled adults regret their decision to stop at Torgo's, little Debbie bails out the front door, and we cut to a commercial. When we come back, it's time for another host segment. This time, it's a thoughtful discussion of what physical characteristics qualify as monstrous, with some spitballing from Joel and the bots about what kind of monster they would be if they could. Apparently, Torgo is supposed to be some kind of goat man, but with the limited resources of the filmmakers, the actor just kind of has giant thighs. Giant knees? Eh, it's kind of ambiguous. Oh, now I really hate this movie. How long did that decision take the director? A tenth of a second? <laughs> yeah. Big knees! Good! Let's go with it! Back in the movie, Little Debbie is still missing, then turns up with her ridiculous voiceover intact, and the hellhound from the sinister, not really, painting in the parlor. Mike, it's the dog from the portrait. Stand back, Debbie, stand back. Hmm? It's a devil and it's fun. <laughs> His name's Mephisto, can we keep him? Kids worship the darndest things. <laughs> now, as hellhounds go, the plain vanilla Doberman just seems happy to be there and waiting for a treat. So doesn't really come off as scary at all. Also not scary is the main subject of the painting. I'm sorry, he just looks like Freddie Mercury in a caftan. Nevertheless, the actors recoil in horror. 
At some point, Dad Mike goes outside in the dark to do something and gets brained by Torgo. This elicits a nice A Fish Called Wanda reference from Crow as Torgo tries to rope Dad to a handy pole. Oh, got him right in the sweet spot. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, it looks like a really cheap Robert Bly workshop. Soon, we revisit the makeout couple in the sports car, again by the side of the probably same road. It's dark now, so the implication is that they've been smooching all dang day. They are repeatedly encouraged by some helpful highway patrol guys to move along, which they do after grousing a bit, but they only seem to go about a quarter mile each time with predictable results. It's kind of the subplot that has no plot. Whoa-oh! Officer, interrupt us. <laughs> Again, how many times do you have to be told? Twelve. <laughs> we ain't trying to jump on you. Just get. We'll just go ten yards up the road. Okay. They like kissing. Go figure. Meanwhile, back at Shea Manos, there is dissension in the ranks of the Master's harem. Seems there's some debate as to what the fate of the little family should be, and a girl fight breaks out. I'm going to take a sec and comment on the wardrobe here. The wives' outfits are such a letdown after watching Return to Oz last week, in which we had beautiful 1890s costuming. This episode? Sheer curtains over frumpy white underwear. Anyway. Uh, moms, I think you might want to take the kids out of the room now. (laughs) (laughs) Director Hal Warren has a lot to answer for, methinks, because this wrestling goes on a lot longer than it kind of needs to. If ever there was a case for hiring real fight coordinators and stunt people, this is it. I've seen toddlers enact more realistic brawls, but as Tom Servo says... I'm guessing this is the whole reason this movie was made. Right here. Pow! Boss! Smack! Biff. While this is going down, the master drifts off to find Torgo, who has apparently been annoying, that's a euphemism, the wives while they were in stasis. For some reason, one of the wives' sheer gowns is hanging on a peg in Torgo's dingy room. Who? Torgo, you're missing the fight. Get your dress on and get in there. This moment, like every other moment with the Master, just doesn't sell the scary villain thing for me. The Master has the posture, appearance, and bearing of more of a sidekick himself. He's just not intimidating. He's more like just community theater-level pompous. Oh, well. For our next host segment, Joel goes for a bit of role-play. Come to me, for I am the magnet, and you are steel! Well, you look like Maud. He is now the master, complete with a black caftan. Only Joel's has red feet instead of red hands. And he sports a droopy Fu Manchu mustache instead of the Freddie Mercury brush like in the movie. He even has Crow rigged out as a hell beast, but alas... Joel is utterly incapable of being scary. Uh, Joel, uh, Tom's right. It's just not working. You're not the evil type. Cutting to Deep 13, we now get Dr. Forrester apologizing for the film. As Mary Jo Peel says, as well he might. 
Back to the movie, it really is, to quote Anna Russell, a Gilbert and Sullivan type, free-for-all at the end. Only, instead of the chorus all finding true love along with the leads, Torgo is killed, I think? And then we get a sequence of random shots, like one of the wives slinking out, finding Mike the dad tied to the pole, smooching him, slapping him around a bit, and then scurrying off. I'm not sure what the motivation is for that moment. Your guess is as good as mine. The family tries to escape, but gives up after about a hundred yards and goes back. Torgo, who we thought had been executed, gets his hand fried, which amuses the master no end. Dad Mike shoots a sleepy rattlesnake. The makeout cops think they hear shots in the desert, but can't work up any enthusiasm about it. Then, just as we're scratching our heads over that sequence of non-sequiturs, whoops, we cut to the annoying framing device of another convertible traveling the same landscape we saw at the top of the film, only with two co-eds instead of another little family. Uh, no, wait a minute. Did this movie just lap itself? The bright side is we get a goofy monologue from Tom Servo as a voiceover during this bit of padding with the two girls driving and driving. You know, I'm going to have to revise my 20-year plan, but oh, did I tell you about my 20-year plan? Okay, well, okay, listen here. In year one, this is the year when I'm going to take off those... The girls end up, after a random insert of the makeout couple, at the master's compound in the desert, only to be greeted by a series of jump cuts finally revealing Mom and little Debbie, ew, now also enslaved in the master's harem. Bonus! Mike the dad is the new caretaker. Where's Targo? We can't see Targo. I am Michael. Bye, Bye Mike. Mike. I take care of the place while the master is away. Ah, oh, the 60s. Gotta have an edgy ending. For some reason, we're treated to wistful, romantic lounge music under the end credits. Not a clue. At long last, we get the end. But there's a question mark. The end? Oh. Yes. No. Oh, I want to change my answer. No, I'll always wonder. In the closing segments, Crow and Servo wrestle in diaphanous gowns in an attempt to cheer up Joel while down in Deep 13 in one of the classic MST sketches of all time, the Mads order pizza. Is our pizza? It's been two hours since you ordered. Well, I called Togo's Pizza. They were busy, so I ended up having to order from Torgo's Pizza. Come in! Mike Nelson as Torgo is priceless, and Best Brains would use him in that role in future episodes. He just nails it. I wonder how many takes it took to get it with the Mads staying in character. Now, Best Brains rarely did anything under the closing credits except the traditional MST love theme. But how could you pass up the mesmerizing ostinato that is Torgo's theme? It's the most earwormy thing in the score. It's so weird and monotonous. I myself use it for the timer notification sound on my phone. Torgo forever. Thanks, Nancy, and you truly brought back some of my favorite memories from Mystery Science Theater. I mean, both the Mads apologizing for the film is classic, and Hired was classic, and I actually watched this movie without the MST parts, and um, it's, it's painful to watch. 
But now, why don't we find out what Russell in Australia thought of Manos, the Hands of Fate. Hi, Celluloid Days fans. Russell from Australia again. I've been a Mystery Science Theatre fan from first seeing it in the early 90s, despite the singular fact it was never screened here. In those pre-digital YouTube and even pay TV days, we had to rely on VHS videotapes sent from the US. These had to be standard converted from NTSC to PAL, though there were some PAL VHS recorders which had NTSC playback, and sometimes you even had to rig a video camera to shoot off the playback screen to make a copy, which, depending on the camera, might have had an awful flicker due to 30 frames being converted to 25. However, like most things you have to work for, it made you appreciate them all the more. As a result, the MST Eps came to us in dribs and drabs and out of series order, making us wonder why TV's Frank had been replaced by Dr. Larry Earnhardt and Tom Servo's voice had changed. And were there really 309 episodes? Later, as our stocks increased and the newfangled internet spread, we realised a lot better what was going on. I had the good fortune of an American expatriate friend whose sister regularly sent her tapes of new American series. Through her good auspices, myself and other serious sci-fi comedy buffs soon built up quite a collection, augmented from various other sources, and then high-priced official releases started appearing in specialist stores. I was able to order tapes at great expense over eBay, followed by proper local DVD releases and YouTube copies, leading to the proud day 15 years ago when I finally had a full set. The original run of MST was made on a budget shoestring, and the movies they used were basically anything they get that they could afford. These included movies and serials from lower-end Hollywood, like the AIP, Roger Corman and Bert I. Gordon movies, US releases of dubbed Japanese and Euro movies like the Godzilla and Gamera flicks, repackaged TV series and made-for-TV movies like Master Ninja and Mitchell, and lastly and leastly, Oddball Z movies from hometown war tours and Hollywood fringe dwellers like Ed Wood and Phil Tucker. Celluloid Days has already looked at teenagers from outer space and the strange and troubled life of its producer, but in comparison, Manos, The Hands of Fate, makes the former glisten like an early Lucasfilm production. Conceived as a bet by fertiliser salesman Harold P. Warren with screenwriter Sterling Siliphant, it tells of a family who make a wrong turn on a road trip and meet up with a crazy cultist, his bevy of wives, and the widow goat-legged servant Torgo. This isn't actually a bad premise, as many horror films have a similar format, but Warren makes every possible low-budget, inexperienced filmmaker mistake and invents a few of his own. It leads me to think he was not just a fertiliser salesman, but a manufacturer as well. I showed it to my wife, Janet, and she said... I wondered if the movie had been inspired by the Manson family, considering the premise and similar name, but it predates Charlie's infamous outrages by three years. The movie's presence adds yet another layer of bizarreness to the production. As I expect, Jeff and Nancy will cover the movie and its strange personalities in detail. I'll divert to the short instead, which is Hired Part 2. Many of the early run MST movies were barely feature length or had been heavily cut to fit TV time slots, so a variety of shots were used to fill in the time. Serial apps, educational films, industrial movies make up the balance and hired as of the latter class. In the 16mm film days, educational and industrial films had to be made professional Hollywood standard, with actors, sets, location shooting and good visuals and sound. 
and the Jam Handy organization was one of the biggest producers of these. Named for its founder Jam Handy, or rather Henry Jameson Handy, he had begun as a champion Olympic swimmer in the newly revived Olympic Games and continued to swim until his death in 1983 at the age of 97. He was literally the first person to conceive of distance learning using films or slide learning packages to educate people outside the traditional classroom setting and from 1910 to 1983 produced several thousand films and a hundred thousand slideshows in this capacity. The straight-laced and very square depiction of America in these films made them very campy in later years and hence ideal subjects for MST and its spin-offs. Surviving examples have been collected in the Prolinger Archive, which is a vast collection of ephemeral American films in categories not covered by other movie archives. These may be found at the online internet archive, along with many other subjects of interest. But now back to you, Jeff. Thanks, Russell. It's nice to hear uh, that Mystery Science Theatre made it all the way to Australia. Now, before I go, um, I just wanted to share a newspaper article I found from September 16th, 1967. It's from the El Paso Herald. It's about Harold Warren. And it says, In 1949, Mr. Warren wrote a musical comedy, Chaos and Khaki, which included 17 songs. His writing experience covers a wide range. He wrote the movie script for Manos, The Hands of Fate, that was filmed in El Paso, and has prepared another movie script, Satan Rides a Bike, which he hopes to start shooting in the spring. He's also working on a Western and a comedy script. Mr. Warren wrote and appeared in many USO shows during the war. I have to wonder, whatever happened to that script of Satan Rides a Bike? Now listen up, we have a Facebook page and would love to read your comments. It's called Celluloid Days. Please join us. We're also on Twitter, at Celluloid underscore Days. We're always looking for film suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. Our email address for the show is daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of Celluloid, all being one word. Feel free to email us for any reason. If anything, you can just say hi. And if you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, at wherever you get this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. I want to thank both Nancy and Russell for contributing today. And, of course, thanks to all of you for listening. I'll be back in August, so I hope you enjoy Nancy and Gordon next month. Thanks. Bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. Your stupid minds, stupid, stupid. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can.